Good morning, everyone. Uh, let me just take this, this time really quickly before we get into our message, just to, just to say thank you. Um, I've been meaning to do this for a number of weeks now, but every single time I've, I've had the opportunity to come up, uh, I almost, almost uh, instantaneously just get into my text or, or something like that. But let me just t- take time uh, right now to just say thank you. I'm, I'm thinking uh, of, of individuals uh, who are currently outside and who are walking out in the cold and just looking out for our benefit and our safety while we have the opportunity to worship inside here. I just want to say thank you. I'm thinking about all the individuals who, as people have engaged and coming through those doors, you have been met hopefully with a, a, a tender smile and, uh, you know, handshakes and wonderful hugs. And I just want to say thank you. I'm thinking of all the individuals who uh, stand in the gap as prayer warriors, that as soon as you hear of someone who has lost a loved one or somebody who is hospitalized or somebody who is going through some type of trouble, tribulation, or distress, these are the individuals that almost instantaneously, they send a text, they send a note, or they, they just, they just uh, go to God constantly in prayer. And I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to every single parent that is here this morning, who have dedicated their lives, not just to helping to raise their own kids, their own flesh and blood, but for those as well who have gone the extra mile in adopting or even reaching out to help in the pew and in the congregation with other kids that are not necessarily their own. And I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to every member of the body of Christ here at Antioch, who is an encourager. And you heard me right. Every that is a member here at Antioch, who is an encourager, who understands that uh, this road that we are on and this life that we have been called to live is not necessarily about our very own selves, but we, we do this in community and we do this in partnership. And so in, in, in major part, we do look out for one another as we really strive to make heaven our home. And I just want to say thank you. A few weeks ago, Brother Stan uh, stood in my place when I was sick. And, and it was funny because when, when I was listen, listening in and uh, just viewing the service, I just had a conversation right there with God. And you guys wouldn't have been able to hear me, but I was isolated in a room with COVID. And when Brother Stan, uh, you know, stepped in and he substituted for me, I was in my room on my bed. And I was just, I was literally hollering in my room because... It was amazing to see God work and God speak through him on that particular Sunday morning. And I just want to say thank you. Uh, I say it's funny because while I was there talking with God, I I almost jokingly said to God, you didn't have to give me COVID (laughs) in order for Stan to have preach. You could could have sent me a dove or something. I uh, I would have gladly allowed this brother to to step in and and say a word. And I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to this congregation for the way that you have embraced my family and I. It might might sound almost nostalgic as as if to say I'm just giving my last will and testament, but uh, I I just want to say thank you for the way that you have embraced my my family and I in in what has been at times uh, a bumpy transition, but it has been smooth if I'm really being honest with you. And I just want to say on behalf of my family and I, thank you. Over the next uh, few weeks, 
I've endeavored to connect with various people, and the idea is that we will uh, have individuals who would be sharing some of their stories. And so beginning on next week, I wanted to do it today to start this, this off, but beginning next week, we are going to have Gina. I always call her name Gianna, but it's Gina, and she said, she said it's Gina. It's Gina. And, and so I've, I've asked Gina to, to make a brief video, a testimony of sorts. And on next week, we're going to share this video. And uh, of course, for those of you who are aware, uh, last year, Gina had a, a run-in of sorts, uh, a close encounter with possible harm or worse death. And she's going to share that in a, a video form next week. It's going to be brief, but uh, I want to encourage uh, anyone and everyone, if, if you have a testimony that you want to share, I want you to take that same format if you don't mind. Feel free to make a, a short video of yourself, three minutes, four minutes, uh, no longer than five minutes. Uh, that's funny coming from me. But, 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 <laughs> but, but feel free, feel free to, to take the opportunity to record yourselves, um, sharing your story, sharing your testimony. Uh, and of course, the whole idea is how in the midst of what you were going through, God was able to bring you through it. And so I want every person, if you're so inclined, to feel free to make said videos. You send it to me or send it to Brother Andrew, and, and we will do best to be able to share in a very tangible way with the church because everyone may not know your story. Everyone may not be aware of some of the struggles you have encountered and, and the way that God has brought you through. And I believe through our testimonies, God is able to speak and to encourage the masses. So I want you to be able to have the opportunity to share your story, share your testimony so that we all can be blessed. So if you don't mind, on next week, we'll be beginning with Gina as she shares her faith story and her testimony with each and every single one of us. With your permission, after it's done in this format, we will then post it on Facebook uh, for the entire world to see. Uh, I'm, I'm going to leave that there. So what I want to do for a preaching, for my preaching over the next three weeks at least, is I want to look at a, a series in looking at some, some phrases and some concepts that New Testament writers, particularly the gospel writers, have found it necessary to speak about and own in their writings. And really, I'm talking about this, this idea of uh, taking up something while putting something down. And so for the next three weeks, today I'll be looking at taking up your compassion. Next week I'll be looking at taking up your towel. And the first Sunday in next month, I'll look at taking up your cross. The flip side to these, of course, is laying down your stones, and we'll be dealing with that today. Next week we'll be looking at laying down your robe, and on the third Sunday, we will look at laying down yourself. As you think of Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and following, Jesus, when he makes uh, th this discipleship call, he says unto those who are there, come unto me, all you 
that labor and are heavy laden. And that's not our text, but I want to just say this. Come on to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I, he says, will give you rest. Notice he would say, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I want us to notice as he makes that call and as he makes that plea, he says, take my yoke. And so it stands to reason that as he says, take my yoke, if if they are understanding this from their context and they are understanding this from a particular background, they understood that when Jesus said that you needed to take up his yoke, there were some things in response that you needed as well simultaneously to let go of. And so as he calls all those who are labored, as he calls those that are heavy laden, he is calling them to take up his yoke, which is easy, which is light, while at the same time laying down their burdens. So I want to pick up on this idea of taking some things up while putting some things down. And so our text this morning, and I I really want to be diligent this morning, our text this morning is taken from the book of John chapter 8, the gospel account of John chapter 8, reading from verses 1 through verse 11. And everyone, going back from the previous verse, and I'll tell you why in a little bit, and everyone went to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, Now, early in the morning, he came again unto the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down, and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher. This woman was caught in adultery, and I want you to pay attention to this phrase, in the very act of it. Now Moses in the law commanded that such an individual should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, of course, testing him that they may, might have found something to which to accuse him But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear them. So when they continued asking him, finally he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and those who heard it being convicted by their conscience. I want you to take note of that as well. They went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the, to the last or to the youngest. 
And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and he saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those who accused you? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I want you to note that. Neither do I condemn you. But I want you to go and sin no more. If you don't mind, I I want to spend a little time looking at this text, and it's my hope and prayer that as we look at this text, of course, we want to be able to see it from the context in which it was written, but we also want to be able to see what lessons are there for us to learn and what application points can be made. Keep me in prayer as well. It's, it's amazing that as I got up this morning, I was feeling really good, and as soon as I, I came in to the cold atmosphere, I just felt my nose stuffed up. So ever, ever so often, I'm having to breathe through my mouth in order to be able to speak, and that's really funny right now. But I want us to appreciate this text. If you allow me just for a few minutes to just give some information about this text. The text that we just read is, is hotly debated and contested, especially among skeptics uh, of religion, and not just religion, but those, those who are skeptical about Christianity, who do not believe that the Bible is true and that the Bible is full of errors. Why do you say that, Brother Morgan? Because uh, if, depending on the translation of the Bible that you have, you would notice that this text that we just read, verse uh, th- 53 of uh, chapter 7, coming into chapter 8, all the way down to verse number 11, you might realize in your translation it might either be in italics or there is a note there that says that in earlier manuscripts, in some of the earliest manuscripts that we have uh, uh, of Scripture, you don't find this text in the earlier or earliest manuscripts that were found. However, in later manuscripts, this particular text, verses 1 of chapter 8 through verse 11, is found in a lot of earlier manuscripts. So there is a lot of debate that says, uh, well, you know, see here it is. This, this isn't even an earlier manuscript, so it, it must mean that this is man-made and somebody put this in there. But I just want to make a case for uh, this particular text being found in even some of the earlier manuscripts. If you take into, into account that this, this gospel that John is writing is a later, if not the latest gospel that we know to date, Whereas these other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written in earlier periods, John's Gospel is the latest estimated to have been written anywhere between 83 and 85 uh, AD. That is to say, years has passed after Christ would have walked on this earth, after the church would have been established, after the church has gone through some transitions for some decades, about 50 or so years has already gone by, and now John is taking the opportunity to not just write 
a, a, a gospel record of Jesus outlining Jesus' ministry and life. But John, if we understand it from this standpoint, John is taking the opportunity by inspiration to speak to some very theological things concerning Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't deal with theology, but I'm saying when you look at the gospel of John and the way in which John writes and the outline of, of John's writing, John speaks to a deeper type of teaching with regard to the identity and, and character of Jesus Christ. And so within the confines of John, that's where we go to see the true deity of Jesus Christ. He was not only uh, manifest in the flesh, but he was God in the flesh. He was not only man, but he was God in the representation of a man. And so we go to John's account to see the deity of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that John often does is John identifies the various ways in which Christ himself would have identified himself as being God. So within the confines of John, John outlines at least seven, some people say eight, but we know at least there are seven I am statements that Jesus himself would have made concerning himself. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am that I am. These are all found within the confines of the gospel of John. So the thinking is, if we are to recognize that John is taking this from a more Christian theology type of approach, that John is taking the opportunity after these number of years to speak to some things concerning theology and the character and attitude of Jesus, then it stands to reason that there is a good reason why it is that we don't find this text necessarily in older or early manuscripts, but we find this text in some newer ones. And that's because John is taking the opportunity to speak to some theology, to speak to some things that maybe would have come under hot contention or hot debates later on in Christianity. But I want us to notice something. Chapter 8, though we could take this text, verse 1 through verse number 11 in isolation, it falls within the confines of a broader text that begins, context that begins even way back in chapter 5. Something, something takes place early in chapter 5, and in this particular account, really what's going to happen is, is Jesus is going to heal a man who apparently was lame on the Sabbath day. As scripture would tell us that here it is, this, this man was there with a number of individuals who had uh, several ailments, and uh, there's this pool of water, uh, the pool of Bethesda or Bethsaida, depending on your, your tribe. The idea was there was a particular point in the day when the waters would be troubled. Now, I, I need to say this because if you read in your text, depending on your translation, it would, it would say that an angel would come down at a certain point in the day, and it would trouble the water, and whoever was able to make it into the water at that time of troubling, that their ailment would be healed. In other words, if I could get into the water when the water is troubled, then more than likely the people who came out were deemed to have been healed. I, I need for us to know, I won't have time to 
to deal with this t t today, but I need for us to know that when the scripture says their angel, or in, in your translation it might have angel, that really the case, that's not really the case. And we're going to spend some time maybe studying that later on this year. But I need for us to appreciate the scene is that there are these individuals who are sick and ailing with all these different ailments. And Jesus encounters this one particular man. The scripture says that he had this ailment or this infirmity for 38 years. I want you to keep that in mind. For 38 years, this man had this infirmity, and Jesus looks to him and says, hey, would you, would you like to be healed? And he's like, oh, you know, that makes a lot of sense. That's why I'm, the problem is I don't have somebody to take me into the water. So every time the water is troubled, I'm not able to get down. So Jesus says, okay, no problem. <laughs> Rise up, take up your bed, and walk. So without even having to go to the pool, I'm telling you, I'm going to preach this text sometime. This is not the text I want to preach, but, 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 but he didn't have to go to that water to get his healing. The true and living water gave him healing. Uh, that, that's not my text. Let me leave that alone. But, 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 but here's the thing. I need for us to recognize this. This man had an ailment for how many years? 38 years. But that didn't mean that he himself was 38. How do you know that? Or how, why would you make that association, Brother Morgan? Well, as you continue in this particular text, this is chapter 5 now, as you continue on in the text, the scribes and the Pharisees would get wind of, of this man's healing and they would try to find out exactly what's responsible for this healing. He said, well, I, I don't know because by this time Jesus has already made his way out of the crowd and, and the very next day Jesus encounters this man. Look at this, look at this. In verse number 13, I'm in chapter 5. Verse number 13 of chapter 5, but the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn himself from the multitude being in that place. Verse 14, afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made whole. Everybody there with me? Verse number 14, he tells him, sin no more. Lest a worse thing comes upon you. Is that in your Bibles? So the scripture says that this man had an infirmity for 38 years. That is not to say that he himself was 38 years. If you recognize what Jesus is saying in verse number 14, he is saying to him, listen, this is the implication of the statement Jesus makes. The reason why you ended up where you ended up to begin with was because of some sin. So maybe because of something you did that you weren't supposed to do, you ended up where you ended up. So you've been suffering for this th these 38 years because of something that you did, which is, which is in contrast, stark contrast to the blind man Jesus would encounter in chapter 9 of the Gospel of John who was born blind from birth. And the disciples would ask of Jesus, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Well, Jesus is like, well, how could this man, before he was even born or when he was born, commit sin so that he could now be made blind? But no, 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 this has happened so that the power of God or the glory of God may be manifest. Notice the contrast. So in chapter number 5, the implication is maybe there is something that this man would have done to put him in a position to where he was now 
lame or he had this particular infirmity. You guys, you, you with me, right? Keep in mind, in the book of Mark chapter number 5, I know I'm going kind of quick, but I want you to make these associations. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus encounters a woman who had an issue of blood. And the scripture tells us that for 12 years. So she suffered for 12 years, but it didn't mean that she was 12 years of age. You guys with me now? So even though it indicated that this man had an issue for 38 years, clearly it didn't mean that he himself was 38. Clearly it didn't mean that he was born the way that he was. So by implication of what Jesus was saying at the end of, of this dialogue, Jesus says, see here, you have been made whole. You, you ended up in a bed. You ended up lame. You ended up with, with this infirmity because maybe of something, some sin that you committed. Isn't it true sometimes, church, that the reason why we end up where we end up is because of some foolery that you and I had engaged in? Isn't it true that sometimes, not all the time, but isn't it true that sometimes when we find ourselves in our pits and when we find ourselves in our mess, when we find ourselves in our frustrations, isn't it true that sometimes it's because of something or some lifestyle that we are living? So Jesus wanted this man to know that, listen, he wants us to know, and John is using this to help us to recognize that, that Jesus is not in the condemning business. He is in the compassion you with me? He's within the compassion business. And so he says, listen, sin no more, lest something worse were to happen to you. Now, what would happen from here on out is that these scribes and these Pharisees will have issue because this healing that would have taken place would have took, taken place on the Sabbath day. So as you go through chapter 6 and as you enter into chapter number 7 particularly, and even... As you make your way to chapter 8, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, that Jesus would have healed this man way back in chapter 5 on the Sabbath day, and you have these Pharisees and these religious leaders that are seeking out to, to, to take hold of him because he did this on the Sabbath day. So even when Jesus enters into the temple, even when he enters into Jerusalem in chapter number 7, it's the beginning of what is considered to be the, the Feast of Boots or the feast of the, ta feast of Tabernacles. And he has to be careful because in his mind he understands that these people are still out to get me. But nonetheless, he makes his way into the temple. He sits down and he begins to teach. Some people get it, and some people don't. And then we encounter our text, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Follow me on this. As we think about this text and the purpose behind why this text might be here, I believe the reason why this text is, is here is because John is trying to give a clear picture as to who Jesus was, what his ministry was all about in contrast to the religious leaders of the day. Jesus was about saving souls. Jesus was about healing the sick. Jesus was about mending the brokenhearted. Jesus was about bringing people who were afar off. He, he was about bringing people into relationship with God. But the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they were content and they were intent 
on holding on to traditions that they themselves would have created. And so this created a culture among the Jewish people that superseded, if you didn't recognize, the very commandments of Almighty God. But here's what I want us to see before we get into our text. And I'm going to go through this text really, really quickly. I'm just going to pull some things out, and the message would be yours, hopefully. Here's what I want us to recognize. Culture never supersedes the commandments of Almighty God. The problem was that these religious leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees, these Jews, they created an atmosphere and they created a culture amongst the Jews that, that, that this culture came. And if you didn't live up to the tradition or you didn't live up to the culture, then all of a sudden you became an outsider or an outcast. So Jesus didn't come living up to their traditions. Jesus didn't come living up to their standards. You guys with me now? Jesus didn't come living up to their culture. He came trying to live up to the very commands of God. And here's what I want us to see in this text. They knew God's word to an extent, but they knew it just enough to allow them to live and lead the type of lives that they were comfortable with. Let me repeat that one more time. It's not that these people didn't know the word of God. It's not that these individuals didn't know what Leviticus said, what Deuteronomy said, what was found in Exodus and Genesis. It, it's not that they didn't know what the prophet said. They knew what the law said, but they knew it enough for them to condone their lifestyles, their beliefs, their traditions, and their very own culture. So they twisted the word of God to suit them when it was necessary. But here's the truth. As I try to do this, we could do the same if we're not careful. Finding scriptures here and there to, to justify or to suit our thinking and our belief systems. So they come to Jesus, and I want to go through this really quickly, and I hope you, you could see this. They come to Jesus, and the scripture says that they found a woman. Do you notice the term that she was caught in the very act of adultery? The last time I checked, you can't commit adultery by yourself. At least not the physical type of adultery. You could, you could do it if we're, if, we're, if we're using it for a metaphor for the spiritual adultery. But, 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 but this physical adultery, you, you, you can't perform this by yourself. But they come to Jesus. And I need for us to understand some things, church, that not everybody who claims to want to learn more is trying to learn from a position of sincerity, but they are trying to justify their own current positions. Is it not true that sometimes when we study on some of the things that we know of theology, we only study the things that we would have heard already so we could strengthen what we already know or the things that we have heard? Many of us don't study in a broad enough sense to challenge the things that we have already learned and heard. This, this, this is why I, I have to go a little bit long sometimes because I, I, never, I never could tell if what I just say truly resonated. Let, let me give you a classic example of what I mean. If, 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 if you have been in the church for more than 30 years, you probably grew up here in the teaching or the belief and the doctrine that the only day, the appropriate day to give was Sunday. 
Because the scripture clearly says, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, now concerning the collection for the saints. As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do we upon the first day, let every of you lay by and store as God has prospered them, and so let him give. You, is that right? So you've probably heard, if you've been in the church for more than 30 years, if, if, if you grew up in the 80s and in the 90s being a part of the church, even beyond that, 70s and 60s, you've probably heard that the only appropriate day to give as a church is Sunday, and people run to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. The problem is they don't read past verse number two. Because if you read past verse number two, you recognize that this was a special collection that Paul was speaking to that was intended as it was picked up to go towards the church or, or the area churches in the area of Judea or Jerusalem because of a famine or a dearth that was going to happen a year from now. But we've taken these doctrines and we've, we've taken up these positions that the only appropriate day for us to take up our collection is Sunday. What if somebody's house burned down on Monday and the church meets on a Monday? Could we not pass a collection plate around? What if somebody is, is, is in need of, of food or something and, and we've got it on a Wednesday? Do we have to wait until Sunday? Or do the elders have to work in secret and, and do it behind door? You know, you know what I mean? So it, it, it can't be that if we have to take up a pool of money, it can't be that we... We, we, only, we, 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 we do this on any other day but Sunday. And so I'm just trying to help us to recognize that oftentimes, sometimes, and I, I've known people that have studied that to say, well, listen, this is what the scripture says, and look, on the first day of the week they gathered, and on the first day, and on the first day, and we've made a theology, and so we only study the things to strengthen what we have already heard and know. But we very seldomly study in such a broad sense to make sure that the things that we believe are actually true. That's the beauty of the Bereans. That when they heard the apostles, the apostles, now not just any random bystander by the way, but when they heard the apostles preach and the apostles teach, the Bereans decided that they were going to make sure for themselves. We need more. We need more disciples who aren't just willing to accept what they've heard as if it's gospel truth, but they have to make sure through thorough study for themselves that actually what we are believing needs to be believed. So they bring this woman, she's caught in adultery, she's caught in the very act, and they say to Jesus, listen, we found this woman caught in the very act. Notice this. And so Moses said in the law, she should be stoned. But what do you say? John would record that he, he, he records their intent because he said this they wanted to do in order to test Jesus because they were trying to find an occasion to, 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 to kill him, to lay hold of him. Watch this, church. Notice they, re, they make reference to the law, right? Now, let me tell you this. The law does outline some really strong regulations for adultery. There I say, for every regulation of adultery I found in the law, it, it usually almost ended with, with stoning. It usually almost ended in, uh, in death of some sort. But here is the thing. In most cases, the man had to be present as well as the woman that was involved. 
So you look, for example, at the book of Leviticus, chapter number 20, and reading from our verse number 10, you go, for example, to Deuteronomy, chapter number 22, reading from our verse number 13, and it gives you an outline of regulations concerning uh, individuals who are found in all different forms of sexual immorality. And dare I say, the woman wasn't usually the primary factor in all of that. It was the man. So clearly, as they bring this woman to Jesus, I want us to see that sometimes, yes, we might know Scripture, but we only, we only quote the thing that suits us. And whenever we handle the word in a way that is insincere, unsincere, whenever we handle, handle the word in, in such a way, we do not handle God's word aright. So Paul will tell his, his young protege, Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling aright the word of truth. Not only do we need Christians and disciples who understand the value of proper study, but we need individuals to recognize the value of the very word of God. We have a growing group amongst the church and a growing group amongst the world that does not believe in the true value of the word of God. So when you hear terminologies like God's word, when, when you hear terminologies like, like the word of God, that's troubling to some people. And so I need for us to appreciate, we need to be people who understand the value of not just good study. Say amen. amen. But we need people who understand the true value in the necessity of God's word. We can't live out the way that we should until we have a love. You guys hearing me? We can't live out the way that we should until we have a delight. We can't live out the way that we should until we have a burning and a yearning for the word of God. You guys know by now that I love cake. I'm, 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 I promise you I'm done. You, you, you guys know that I love cake. That's no secret by now. Miss Cheryl made, made, made three, three, three cupcakes uh, two, two, two weekends ago, and she, she gave it to me. My intention, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll confess, my intention was to share. <laughs> that was my intent. But by the time I bit into the first one, it turned into the second one. <laughs> and then it it got to the third one. Well, Brother Barry is saying, well, Brother Morgan, what, what is the point? I'm saying when, when you love something, you can't get enough of it. If you, if you love sports, you can't get enough, enough of it. If you love food, you can't get enough of it. When you love family, you can't get enough of it. If you love the word, you can't get enough of it. So here they come to Jesus with part truth. And church, I want us to understand that we can't take part truth to the world. We can't even adopt part truth for ourselves. Here's what I want us to see. Jesus does something that John records in these later manuscripts. 
that almost baffles my mind, but as I look at it, he, he does it because he is the master teacher. They come to Jesus. This is what the law says. But what do you? Jesus bends down on the ground. And as he bends down to the ground, he begins to scribble something on the ground. I could tell you what some commentators have said that could be, but all that is is supposition. I could tell you some commentators say, you know, uh, the first time we ever see God write anything with his finger was when he, he penned the Ten Commandments in the two tablets of stone. So some have suggested that maybe when Jesus bent down to write, he started writing out all Ten Commandments. I, I, I could possibly tell you some have, some have suggested that maybe what Jesus started doing was writing a list of names and, and maybe as, as he started writing the list, many of them that were there could have looked down in the sand to see that their name was right there in the list together with the name of this woman that they brought in adultery. I could tell you that there are some people who were indicating that, that Jesus was writing out a, a list of various sins, maybe. That if people were honest with themselves as they looked down and start to pay attention to what he was doing, Right? as opposed to their own selfish ambitions, they would have recognized he just wrote down, okay, adulterer. Well, clearly that's this woman, but he wrote down, liar, uh, that might be me. He wrote down, uh, and so he might have been writing a list of various sins of which all of them would have probably found themselves in. Scripture doesn't tell us. I told, told you I'm done. Let me put this down. The, the, the scripture doesn't tell us. But here's what I want us to see. Jesus gets down there, writes in the sand, and he gets back up. And then when he gets back up, because they didn't pay attention apparently to what he was doing, all along his ministry, the Pharisees weren't paying attention to what Jesus was doing. So now he had to compile what he was doing with speech. We need to be the type of good learners who could recognize what Jesus was doing as well as appreciate when he speaks. Because apparently if they, was, if they were observant of what he was doing, they would have recognized that he came to show compassion and not judge they would have recognized that he came to reconcile and not condemn. So they didn't, they didn't pay attention to what he was doing, but now he has to speak. And so now he's going to get your attention by saying this. Let he who is without sin do what? Cast the first stone. So notice this. Notice this. The scripture says those who heard it and were convicted in their own conscience. What does that mean? Kim, you mind if I use you for a second? This is only going to take a second. Could I, could I... Oh, no, you don't have to come up. The camera will catch us right here. Okay. <laughs> I'm holding her in hand, 
but it's a reflection of me holding her in my heart. You sinner, you. You adulteress, you. You liar, you. You guys seeing it now? You murderer, you. And so I'm holding her in hand. They have held but it's a reflection of, of who they truly are on the inside. They, they are holding her physically, but there are a lot of people that are, they, they are holding in their hearts internally. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they were quick to mention those who were sinners. Whereas Jesus' ministry, he sits and he eats with publicans. You guys with me? I'm, I'm, two more minutes, two more minutes. Will, and I'll be done. Two more minutes. So, they're holding her in heart. How many people have struggled with unforgiveness here from time to time? You may not necessarily have been holding somebody by the throat or holding them by the hand, but do you see the correlation? Anytime you struggle with that type of sin, it's because you're holding somebody in your heart. Are you seeing it? So Jesus, even though we read the words of Jesus, right, sometimes we, 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 it needs to get to the point where we could see ourselves in the person. And until we see ourselves in the person, that's, that's un, until we do that, we'll continue to hold people in our, in our minds and in our hearts. So Jesus says to them, let he who is without sin so he was speaking to the people who were holding on to this woman. Let he who is without fault. Anybody here without fault? Let me see the perfect people here in this room. Now, could I ask a question, and could you be honest? We're not perfect, right? We all have sinned. But don't we hold people in our hearts sometimes? Don't, don't we hold people by the emotionally and mentally, aren't there still some people we haven't yet forgiven? Aren't there still some people that we just don't reach out to? So he says, really, you, 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 you've seen and you have observed my ministry, but I need for you to hear me in such a way where you put yourself in this person's shoes. So it's not until I realize what Jesus is saying, I am a sinner just as this person. The only difference is she was caught. I don't know what happens behind everybody's closed doors, but I, I could tell you, I, I, I'll, I'll confess to you that I do sin. And if you're you will confess to me that you do too. So what Jesus is doing and what John is teaching, I told you I was going to be done. What Jesus is doing and what John is teaching, notice what Jesus says when, when he says that, and the scripture says from the eldest of them, to the youngest of them, they began to walk away. They began to leave the crowd. That's a principle for us. If we have to affect and effect change, it has to start from an young. Not too many people are gonna say amen for that one. Because the idea when you get older is I'm stuck in my ways, but Jesus is saying as a disciple of me, it's not about you being stuck in your ways. If you are truly transformed by my life and by my teaching, you too have the ability to change. So it starts with the 
oldest generations to the youngest ones. You want to talk about intergenerational uh, connectivity? Let's start with the old generations, waking our way down to the young generations. Watch this. You guys stop looking around. I'm, I'm, I promise you. Let's stand. I'm done. Watch this. As they leave the scene, Jesus looks to the woman who is left all alone with him. Whether you get in this? He looks at the woman who is left all alone with him, and he says to the woman, where are your accusers? Lord, there is none. I need for us to appreciate that she was in the presence of Jesus. So it wasn't that she was actually alone, but the people who accused her had left. She was in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. She was in the presence of the great I Am. She was in the presence of the Lord, Savior, Master, and King. She was in the presence of God himself. And I'm telling you, you don't need to have a crowd around. All you need is God, and you have a good crowd and a good presence. But notice when it comes to the accusations, notice when it came to the condemnation, Jesus is saying, you are in my presence. I'm not here for that. So all your accusers aren't here. I'm not one of them. So I want us to appreciate this as we, as we engage this text and as we get this message. There are some things that Jesus is saying that we need to let go. And he says, I need for you to let go of your stones. Could you say that? Let go of your stones. Because what that means, Jesus is actually teaching them through this illustration and through this, this, this account. He's actually teaching them, you need to let go of judgment. You need to let go of condemnation because that's not why we are here. If we have to bring people close to God, church, you get this? If we have to bring people into the presence of God, we have to learn to let go of our stones and take up compassion. You ready, you ready Thomas? <laughs> yeah. See this, because here's what I don't want us to hear. Jesus says take up compassion, but compassion is not an excuse to compromise for sin. You thought I was going to forget that, right? He tells you, man, take, go thy way. I don't condemn you, but go sin no more. So in as much as to take up compassion, in as much as it's our determination to bring people close to God, it should also be our determination not to condone a lifestyle of sin. The lame man probably got lame because of some sin he committed. The woman ended up in this crowd as a tool in somebody's foolish plan because of some sin she was committing. I need for us to see this. When God connects with us and he heals us, has anybody here been healed? Has God touched anybody here? Then he says, go and sin no more. Repeat after me. Take up your compassion. Your compassion. Yeah. Your 
Pastor.